this episode of the podcast is brought to you by Anchor. If you don't know what Anchor is and you're thinking about starting a podcast, you should probably find out what Anchor is because Anchor is a free way to host your podcasts. It also gives you creation tools like the ability to record yourself, record with other people, edit as well, and do it from your phone or your computer. You don't need to go buy fancy tools to start. You can start with Anchor. And you can hit the nice distribute button, and it's going to send it out to all the places you want it to be, like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, and more. In addition to that, you can make money from your podcast with no basic listenership. In other words, if you only have 10 people because you're just starting, you can still monetize that. It's really hard to find a better place to start. So download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm and get started on the crazy podcast journey. I've got my hot tea and I'm ready to do this. You know, actually, before we go into the episode, I was contemplating a catchphrase. I've been listening to a lot of True Crime Garage. And those guys, they have these little catchphrases. Uh, Maybe they overdo it a little bit, but I kind of like it. There's a little comfort to it. And there's something I said before that's been kind of running through my head. And I was like, maybe I can make that the catchphrase. Use it every once in a while. Use it sparingly. And the phrase is, strap that teabag to your mug and let's get going. What I'm talking about is literally the hot tea that I have in my hand. I tie it to the the handle. Of my mug. But then I realized (laughs) that that catchphrase is not going to be a good one because it can mean two things. One, what I'm talking about. And then teabag means something else. And I thought that maybe I was mitigating that by using strap the teabag to your mug. But then as I was walking in here right now, I remember that mug is a synonym (laughs) for face. So not helping myself out. Not sure if that not sure if that key phrase is gonna stick around. Maybe, maybe anyways. Maybe. Anyhow, let's let's talk a little bit about uh Tim Ferris. I say that, I say that like we're we're buddies. Let me let me tell you about my buddy Tim Ferris. Now earlier today I was searching around looking at I always like to look at what other people are doing with their Patreons. Like, are they doing anything interesting that sounds fun to play around with? And one of the people I always go to investigate all things Patreon is Amanda Palmer. To me, Amanda Palmer is inseparable from the idea of Patreon because I learned about what Patreon was from Amanda Palmer. So I went over there and I was looking at her Patreon page and I found out that she has a podcast now. Shouldn't be too much of a surprise because I think eventually everybody's going to have a podcast. But her podcast is called The Art of Asking Everything. And you know, I went through the went through the archives and looked to see is anybody in here I recognize that I want to I want to hear the conversation with. And I saw that she had Tim Ferriss as a guest. And I clicked on it immediately because the last time that Amanda Palmer was on Tim Ferriss's podcast, they had a really extraordinary conversation where Amanda was just super open and bare and vulnerable talking about what it was like to go through a miscarriage 
and everything associated with that and the many different directions, of course, that they went from there. But it was one of the best podcasts I've ever heard. So to see the two of them together again was an automatic click for me. And it was a good thing I did because we wouldn't, we might not be having this episode if I hadn't listened to that. Because there's a little bit in there where they're talking about uh, people talking shit to you online. You know, you're, you're a creator, you're putting yourself out there and people attack you. And they were talking a little bit about what that experience was like. And they both agreed that the best way to look at that is it's kind of like a tax that the percentage of people that will come after you for <laughs> you just being you and doing what you're doing is a tax. That it's just something that it comes along with it. You know, I think Tim says, let's assume that 10% of people out there will take something that you do personally and they will attack you. Then it's a 10% tax. And it's not a side effect of the job. A lot of people like to think about it like that. Like, I make things. Unfortunately, along with that, sometimes comes trolls. It's not a side effect. It's actually part of the job. It's built into what the job is. Putting things out publicly means being criticized. Period. It's part of it. And I I zoomed in on that idea immediately because that idea of understanding the job, understanding what the actual job is, and understanding what's part of it is such a huge huge piece of being able to actually accomplish things. There's an interview that I heard many years ago with the actress Ashley Williams on the podcast That One Audition with Alicia Oxy. And one of the things that Ashley Williams talks about in there is auditioning. Now, a lot of actors think auditioning is kind of a pain in the ass. Like, oh, I got to go audition. I got to go audition. And then what they're all trying to do is get to a place where they don't have to audition. You know, like, I'm Sean Penn. I want this part. Okay. You know, either he gets the part or he doesn't, but he doesn't have to go down there and audition. Let's see your chops, Penn. Can you act? What Ashley Williams said that I found really interesting, and I haven't forgotten, obviously, because it popped in my head today, was she said that for her, auditioning is part of the job. It's just the job. Everybody sees it as like this tack on, like the acting, just being on set is the job. Just having as the, as the lingo that they use, having something booked is the job. But that's only part of the job. Another part of the job is auditioning. And I never forgot that because there's something, I, I don't even know if I knew at the time why that was important to me that I, that I couldn't let it go. There's something important in that about framing. I talk about framing a lot because I think framing is 90% of the game when it comes to mindset. You know, if you look at things in a shitty way, guess what you get? Shitty results. You know that because we all experience it. So when you when you start to see part of the job as not part of the job, and it's really easy to get into that mindset, that this sucks mindset. There's a great 
little book. I think it's a Kindle exclusive called uh, The Dudes Abide. It's about the Coen brothers and the making of The Big Lebowski. It's written by Alex Belth, who was a production assistant on the film. And he talks about Jeff Bridges on the set. And this is what he says about Jeff Bridges. Most actors are trained in the theater and need a certain number of takes before they can deliver their best performance. Bridges, who grew up around a father who was in TV and movies, didn't need to build up his performance in each take. He simply was the dude and offered variations from take to take. He'd read a line and sound surprised or confused or irritated. He'd do something different physically, add a gesture or change an inflection. Occasionally, he changed the wording for the script. Like when he's summoned by the Big Lebowski, he says, mind if I do a J instead of mind if I smoke a J. Bridges understood that he had limited control over his performance. His job was to give the boys as many options as possible. The framing of a job is everything. An actor can go in and have their script and say, this is exactly what it says. I'm going to do exactly what's on the paper, and I'm going to do it until I get the performance at its peak. That's one way to look at it. Jeff Bridges looks at it a different way. I'm going to do it this way. Then I'm going to try it this way. Then I'm going to try it this way. It's like improv almost. And it's actually something that comes up in that Ashley Williams interview that I mentioned earlier. She talks about working with Tom Cavanaugh on, I think it was like a Hallmark Christmas movie or something. And she talks about how he came into each take differently and how he was just kind of playing and having fun and how that taught her for the first time, like, oh, you can have fun while you do this. There's a generosity to those perspectives. And I'm here to give you options is a different way to look at things. But oftentimes... When we think about, you know, auditioning, oh, auditioning, that's the, that's the crappy part of this job. Oh, auditioning, that's not part of the job. Or every time I put something out, people just rip into me on Twitter. There's a pretension to that perspective. When you think that those things are not part of your job, there's a pretension there. You're saying, I'm too good for that part. I'm too good to audition. I'm too good for people to attack me. Everybody should love me. Everybody should agree with everything I say. Tim mentions in the interview with Amanda Palmer something that Robert Rodriguez told him when he interviewed Rodriguez on his podcast. And he said that there was some new director and they were talking about movies. And he said, oh, and then it was awful. All this went wrong and this person didn't show up and he was just kind of complaining. And Rodriguez just looked at him. He goes, yeah, that's the job. Like that's, that is what being a director is directing like <laughs> part of directing chaos that your job is to deal with the problems. That's the job. And as a podcaster, it's really easy to get into that mindset of like, I'm too good for this. It doesn't start or it doesn't articulate itself in your head as I'm too good for this. It articulates itself as this sucks. I don't want to do this. For example, like all the work that I, I do in pre-production. I just did a, a few minutes ago, I just did a Patreon extra explaining my pre-production process from idea into 
I'm ready to turn on the microphone. That's work. That's a lot of work. Post-production. There's all kinds of stuff that goes on after post-production, right? I'm recording this. After I'm done with this, I've got to take the file from the recorder, get it onto the computer. Then I have to wait for that to load in. Then I got to drop it into Logic. Then I go through and I edit. Find all the little rough spots. Oops, I coughed there. Let's take that out. I paused a little too long there. Let's shorten that a little bit. Um, I made a mouth click noise there. Can I get rid of that? And then after that, you get, I got to put it through the leveler. And then after that, I got to put it through the thing that turns it into an MP3. And then there's the uploading. There's all of this little stuff that looked at in the lens of doing just that one act suck. Like sitting and editing audio sucks. If you think about it only as sitting and editing audio. So most of us podcasters, what we think is, I got to get this show rolling. I got to get this monetized so that then I can pay for an editor. Then I can get an intern who can do this stuff. That's that's kind of like the the path that some people are pushing. Like this is how you, this is the way that you move through podcast success. But you're you're just offloading that stuff, saying that stuff, it's not part of your job. It's not part of my job. But as long as you continue to see that as not part of your job, it will continue to suck every time you do it. And I can get caught up in that too. I get, I've, I've been caught up in that so many times in the past. I was caught up in the whole get an editor thing. That was like the dream. You know, I talked about before putting the microphone and being able to look out the window. But there's also the, oh, it would be cool if I had a recording studio and all I had to do was show up and sit down and talk into the microphone and then somebody else took care of everything afterwards. It's a nice dream. But it's like cutting part of the job out. And I mean, what do I see my job as? I see my job as talking into a microphone, right? That's part of it. I I think like um, in Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukanoff's book, The Coddling of the American Mind, they talk about Socrates, and they say that Socrates thought it was his job to sting, to disturb, to question, and thereby to provoke his fellow Athenians to think through their current beliefs and change the ones they could not defend. There's a part of me that thinks like, yeah, that's kind of like, that's kind of like my job. I like to bring up things that provoke thought. But all that other shit all the pre-production, all the post-production, the editing, the posting, the leveling, the EQing, the DSing. That's part of my job too. It's not something that's different. That's part of it. One of the most difficult things that I've found as a podcaster is asking people to do things. For so long in my podcast, I would never say anything at the end. I would just end the podcast and there would be music. I wouldn't mention Patreon. I wouldn't tell people to follow me on social media. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't ask for anything. I wouldn't do the rating, please rate and review us. I wouldn't do any of that. I didn't do any of it because it made me uncomfortable. But the truth is, that's part of the job too. Not being uncomfortable but facing the discomfort is part of the job. Putting the episode together, doing the pre-production, 
trying to take this little spark of an idea and develop it and pull in different pieces so that I have something interesting to share every day is uncomfortable too, because it's work. And like work is mostly uncomfortable because you're doing something. And most of the time we think we just want to do nothing. But once you start working, you realize it's great. But that initial start to work is discomfort. So my job is to face that discomfort. Sometimes you have to suck it up. That's actually a great chapter in Guy Kawasaki's book, Enchantment. And in this in this chapter, he, I guess it's not even a chapter, it's a section. He talks about an interview with Stephen J. Canal. And Stephen J. Canal is a TV producer. He was kind of the man in the 80s when it came to TV. He created shows like The A-Team, The Greatest American Hero, The Commish, 21 Jump Street, Silk Stockings, and another show called Rockford Files. And that's what Kawasaki is talking about or what he's taking from an interview with Stephen Canal, Stephen J. Canal. But what he's talking about here is who James Gardner is as an actor. James Gardner played Jim Rockford. You might remember him from Maverick, both the TV show and the movie with Mel Gibson. And he, he was uh, he was in The Notebook. So here's what Stephen Canal had to say about James Gardner. There were occasions when I sent a script down to him that I didn't think was the best script that we'd ever shot. And I'd never hear from him. A lot of other actors I worked with over the years would call me up and say, hey, I don't think this is a very good script. We need to do this, this, and this. Never a word from Jim. Nothing. You just do it. So I started to think that he didn't see that it wasn't a good script. Once we were at a rap party at the end of a season, and one of those weak sister scripts came up, Jim wagged his finger at me and said, not one of your better efforts, Steve. So I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Why don't I ever hear from you when you don't like the scripts? He said, I'll tell you exactly why. I trust you, and I trust Juanita, and I trust David Chase. And I know if you send me a script that isn't quite up to what we're used to doing, it's because it's the best you can do that week, given the pressures that are on you. And if I spin you guys all around and force you to rewrite it, I'm going to turn one bad script into four bad scripts. So that's the time the acting department has to step up and really kick some ass. We have to step up and really make the stuff work. We have to look for more motivation to make comedy where I don't see it on the page and try to make it go past the audience without them seeing that it wasn't that good of a story. And I love that. I love that. Like, he understands, Canal was a writer at this time, not a producer. He understands what the writer's job is and what it's like. Like, you got to write a TV script in a week. It's a lot of pressure. Like he, actually, Canal goes on to say, you can't, <laughs> when you're putting out as many episodes as we were at the speed that we were putting them out, they're not all going to be great. Some of them are going to be stinkers. But instead of just dealing with that or complaining about that, be like, this isn't my job. 
And then I actually felt I could feel when I first started walking and going through neighborhoods I hadn't been to before that I could actually feel benefits to my brain, that my brain was feeling healthier. You know, the way your body, if you start exercising, the way your body just kind of starts to feel healthier. That's how my brain was feeling. It was just starting to feel healthier. There's a there's actually an interesting story that I, I just was told on Christmas. My my uncle told me the story about my great grandfather. And my great grandfather, he had a ranch and then he had the house in the city. And he would drive back and forth to that ranch every day to go pick the trees and you know do all the stuff. For some of you maybe who aren't from California and the West Coast, when I say ranch, you might be thinking like some big sprawling like thing with horses and all of this stuff. No, I'm talking about a small plot of land with some trees and some some fruit, fruiting trees like apricots or almonds or something. Back then, they would just they would pick them themselves and sell them. So, not what you're thinking of when you think of ranch. It's something far smaller. But he would go to this every day. And I guess he had a flatbed truck so he could put, you know, crates on there and stuff. And he had this dog called Shorty. And the dog would always jump onto the back of the flatbed truck. And they would drive to the ranch and back every day. And for years, going back and forth, the dog always on the back of the truck. And apparently one day when they were coming home, the dog fell off the back of the truck. And because of all the stuff back there, and he didn't know. My my great-grandfather didn't know that the dog had fallen off the back of the truck. But the dog had gone that route so many times on the back of the truck that he walked home. He knew the way. That's the power of our brain that we're losing by using maps when we don't need it. You know, when's the last time you just went somewhere and tried to find a different route? You know, that you challenge that part of your brain. And it's not the only way that you can challenge the spatial part of your brain as well. You know, for example, I talk about my coffee table all the time. You know, that's where I put the books that I'm working through. I'm always working through like 10 to 20 books. I pick one up one day, I pick one up another day. I put them all on the coffee table. I put them on the coffee table because that space represents, it's kind of like on deck, right? This is the stuff that's on deck. So I know that when I need, that kind of input that I can go over there. And then that's what that space represents. That space represents, you know, the idea area, I guess you could say. And that there's something about the stacks, you know, stacks represent spatially importance, right? The books that are on the bottom are probably less important than the books you have on top. But I also do this when I work with index cards. The reason that index cards work so well with uh, plotting books or, arranging things to you know, figure out ideas or some people do post-its instead of index cards is because we're, we're utilizing the spatial area of our brain. So you can exercise those parts of your brain by doing things like that as well, or by using whiteboards and chalkboards and corkboards. Some of you may remember these things. Some of you may even own them. And it feels different than doing it on the computer. And this isn't a tirade against using the computer. It just uses different parts of your brain so it feels different. 
And I, the one app that I've found on the computer that actually exercises this for me fairly well that I'm using right now to look at the notes for this episode, I mentioned it before, Scapple, because it allows me to do something very similar to the index cards and the post-its. It still feels different than the physical ones. I still prefer the physical ones. I would just be throwing away so much paper, especially now that I'm doing episodes every day. You can't imagine, even if I did post-its, you can't imagine how many post-its I would throw away. Today, I'd probably throw away 30. You know, like I said, these notes sometimes are just one word, two words. So in order to (laughs) derange things, that's a lot of post-its. One of the things that Bond talked about in there is finding people when they're lost. Like people that are actually lost. And what searchers have found is that you find people more often near fences, near walls, and near rivers and creeks. And that when people get lost in like an area, like a defined area, you're more likely, like, for example, if somebody got lost at, uh, I think the example he gives in the book is L'Arc de Triomphe, you know, the big arch in France. It's a big circular area. Well, when people get lost there, like kids get lost there, you almost always find them around the edge and never in the center. There's something in the human that gravitates towards the edge of things. Think about, like if you were on a, if you were on a desert island, what would you do first to explore the island? I would go and walk the beach all the way around to see how big the island was. There's something grounding about edges. It's very interesting. They also found that people with dementia, when they get lost, tend to continue walking in straight lines for as long as they can. And they only turn when there's something in their way. But for the most part, they just walk in straight lines. So it's very interesting how our spatial understanding, beyond just how it affects our our brain and our thinking, but actually it affects our behavior. So really good book. Once again, when I talk about books, I talk about almost anything. I know I'm only scratching the surface. That's why the book exists. (laughs) If you want the good stuff, read the books. Okay, number three. This one will be a little interesting because I think um, maybe some people will find it strange that I like this book so much. This is actually a book I've read before. I reread it this year. This book, I've, I think this book's very important to me. And it's The Celestine Prophecy by James Redfield. This is kind of a new age philosophy book disguised as fiction. Kind of like uh, Paul Coelho's The Alchemist. I think I read it three or four years ago for the first time. And I have, on average, thought about this book at least once a week since then. It's not all of the ideas of the book. It's just certain things that just come to me and I think about them a lot. And they just, they seem to make sense to me. So one of the ideas is, this is, this could probably be the most I've ever read from one book in an episode. I'm going to read three longer paragraphs here because I think that there isn't really a way to summarize this in a way that's adequate. So let me read these. These aren't even three paragraphs in a row. These are paragraphs I'm putting together. A thousand years ago, 
we had lived in a world where God and human spirituality were clearly defined. And then we had lost it. Or better, we had decided that there was more to the story. Accordingly, we had sent explorers out to discover the real truth and to report back. And when they had taken too long, we had become preoccupied with a new secular purpose, one of settling into the world, of making ourselves more comfortable. When the scientific method couldn't bring back a new picture of God and of mankind's purpose on the planet, the lack of certainty and meaning affected Western culture deeply. We needed something else to do until our questions were answered. Eventually, we we arrived at what seemed to be a very logical solution. We looked at each other and said, Well, since our explorers have not yet returned with our true spiritual situation, why not settle into this new world of ours while we are waiting? We are certainly learning enough to manipulate this new world to our own benefit, so why not work in the meantime to raise our standard of living, our sense of security in the world? He looked at me and grinned, and that's what we did. Four centuries ago, We shook off our feelings of being lost by taking matters into our own hands, by focusing on conquering the earth and using its resources to better our situation. And only now, as we approach the end of the millennium, can we see what happened. Our focus gradually became a preoccupation. We totally lost ourselves in creating a secular security and economic security to replace the spiritual one we had lost. The question of why we were alive and what was actually going on here, spiritually, was slowly pushed aside and repressed altogether. He looked at me intensely, then said, Working to establish a more comfortable style of survival has grown to feel complete in and of itself as a reason to live, and we've gradually, methodically, forgotten our original question. We've forgotten that we still don't know what we're surviving for. I love that idea of we sent out explorers, but they didn't come back fast enough. And since we didn't get answers to these deep questions that we had as a, as a world, as a, as a human race, that we just started to make things. We started to invent toilets and you know cars and all these other things. But then we got so wrapped up in making those things that, that those things became our purpose. You know, it's, it's like that line in Fight Club, the things you own begin to own you. I also think a lot about uh, the book Attention Merchants by Tim Wu, where he talks about how marketing and television and the media over time have slowly transformed the way that we look at the world. Like at first people viewed their home as this, as a sacred place where, where nothing from the outside world can encroach. You know, the idea of mailing somebody an advertisement was offensive before because that's your home. How dare you come into the person's home? But then mail started to come in that way. And then radio started to encroach into the home and then television, and then the internet. And now at the, we're at the point where the product, what we're being sold, is no longer a product. What we're being sold is ourselves, the image of ourselves. 
And that Instagram is like the epitome of that, right? Take pictures of yourself and put yourself out as a product. So I love that idea of we just forgot that there were other questions we had. Another part of the book that I think about a lot is this is probably more along the lines of the new age stuff. But I think that even if this isn't something any of us are willing to accept as literally true, that from an allegorical standpoint, this is something that's really... So one of one of the things that I, I'm doing for myself is I created a note in my, my note-taking app. And the note is titled, What Can I Do Every Day to Become More Involved in Life? And I made a note for that because I'm going to just continually fill that with ideas. I don't have to do everything that's in there, but if I have a list of options that every time I catch myself not being involved, I can go into that list and go, what What of these things can I do? What can I do right now to turn this around? And I think that's really important to create lists of options so that you don't have to go through the cognitive load of figuring it out at the moment. That's the hardest thing. You know, like think about exercising. If you go, oh, I need to exercise. I'm putting on some weight. What exercise should I do? Now, all of a sudden, you're working on the idea of like, do I want to run? Do I want? But if you just have a list and you just go down the list, you're like, run. This is this is how workout things like uh, Peloton and the new Apple Fitness, this is how these things work, right? You open it up and there's just a bunch of stuff and you just pick from the list. It removes It removes that cognitive weight. So I'm creating a list for that. We'll see how it works out. I do think that it's important to remember also that your art sucks if you don't have some involvement with other human beings. Because when you make art, you're putting it out into the world. This is not just art. When you make things and you put them out into the world, you're putting them out into the world for other people. And if you are so wrapped in yourself that you don't even realize that other people exist then what you make is probably not going to connect with anyone. Think about that. Ooh. There's an ugly reason to do it. <laughs> Very self-serving reason to do it. All right. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed this. I think that uh, if you ever see this book in a bookstore, you should pick it up, look through it. I know it's expensive, so I won't tell you. You should go and buy this because not everybody may be interested in Ansel Adams' letters and images from 1916 to 1984. But this is going on the coffee table, and it might it might become a permanent fixture on the coffee table. This might be the kind of book that I never need to remove from the coffee table. By the way, the coffee table is my books I'm reading spot. That's where the 10, 12 books that I'm generally reading live. It's like my it's like my workbench. <laughs> If you like this episode and you want to listen to something from the archives, I'm going to recommend episode six. Episode six is an episode I made for when I was doing this feed in four different shows. And one of those shows was Semi-Literate, which was a book club or a book review podcast. And episode six is the first episode of that that I did. And it's on the book, Love Yourself Like Your Life Depends On It by Kamal Ravikant. I think it'll be a good balance to this. 
remember to make space for other people in your life. And then the other balance is remember to care about yourself. So go listen to that one. Check it out. It'll be different. I think that that one should have a theme song in it. It should. I had a theme song for that show. I don't know if I had it in the first episode. And uh, if you want to support this show, you can come over to Patreon, become a patron. I'm doing uh, extra stuff for patrons over there. A little behind the scenes peek through today. I talked a little bit about uh, some of the process and how uh, something I realized about the actual post-production process that I did wrong yesterday. So go check that out. And if you want to support in another way, you can go to the Lend a Hand page on my website where there are nine other ways beyond Patreon that you can help this podcast, including connecting me with someone on my guest list. I have this running list of people that I think would be interesting to talk to. Maybe you know one of them, or maybe you know someone who knows someone. So maybe you can connect me. Go check it out. And uh, I'll talk to you guys soon. Bye.